Thank you, Brother Eric. Welcome, everyone, those that are present here as well as those that join us online. It's a beautiful day here in Southern California, city of West Covina. All right, so what are we studying this morning? This morning we're continuing the study in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a book of lament. Lament meaning someone who is crying out to God, pleading with God, asking God, why are things the way they are? Lord, don't you care? Aren't you doing something? Answer me, Lord. Right? Many times we think, how can a book as old as the Bible relate to me? Well, as we go through the book of Habakkuk, we can see that it is very relevant to our daily lives and to all the chaos that is going on in the world. So with that, um, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to focus on the last end, uh, the last verses rather of Habakkuk, which is verses uh, 15 through 17, and then we're going to go into the first verse of chapter 2. All right, so with that, the reading of the infallible word of God reads as follows. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post. And station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Very timely. The second half of the second lament of Habakkuk that we just read, Lord. As we think about how this book applies to our lives and how we can learn and be edified and be humbled that this would drive us to repentance in our own lives, Lord. First, personally, within our homes, within our families, within our communities, and ultimately within our country and this world that has gone astray. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so I've titled the sermon for today. Will the wicked prosper forever? Often when we are evangelizing or sharing the faith with people, a common objection is, well, you're trying to tell me about God, but I got a question for you. And the, the objection typically goes like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? My answer to that is, that's actually only happened once. And it's not your case. Right? So maybe we could think about that question a little differently and ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Now we fit in that category. And it's not just a clever way of having a comeback, but we have a tendency to think that good people are us. Like, I'm the standard for average Joe good person. Right? However, by the perfect standard 
said by God, none of us are good. Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen astray, that we are enemies of God, that we want nothing to do with God. And in that state, in that, like I call it, out-of-the-box state for every human being, the default position is that we deserve nothing but condemnation. That's the only thing we deserve. Now, without a doubt, there are different degrees of wickedness of human beings, right? Depravity is not equal in the way that is actually carried out. Stealing a candy bar, which as a kid in Mexico, I did. Stealing the candy bar is not as equally bad as murder, right? So obviously there is a difference there. Nevertheless, it seems that a common question that is as old as humanity is, those that do evil, those that are corrupt, those that oppress, why do they prosper? Why does it seem that the bad people are doing so good? This question is as old as the Bible itself. Let us take a quick look at three references. Jeremiah 12, verse 1, it says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? See that? Next, Psalm 73, 3. Similar sentiment. It says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is a warning that as we see what we perceive as the wicked prospering and doing well, that we may even have a tendency to fall in the trap of envying what they have, envying the lifestyle of the reckless, of the wicked. One more, Job 12, verse 6. As we read this, keep in mind that Job has similar complaints to God, as Habakkuk did. It reads, The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. So Job is talking about idolaters who seem to be living well, they are secure, they have prosperity, right? So we now get to picture this question of why do the wicked do well? In this case, the Chaldeans that God is bringing over to judge the Israelites. Why does it seem that they are doing so good? How would that question apply today to us? You might go something like this. Lord, why does my neighbor who is not a Christian or my co-worker or my friend, my acquaintance, who is not a Christian and they openly live an ungodly lifestyle, why are their lives so much better than mine? Better house, <clears throat> nicer cars, seem to have their life squared away. And it doesn't help that we have created this virtual reality that to some extent or the other, all of us do this. We try to tell the world in, in, um, in social media how great our life is. We're having a blast. My family is perfect. I'm living the life that I want to live. And we give this impression that it's false. But it's like a vicious circle. We portray that to others and they believe it. And then they portray that to us and we believe it. And in doing that, it creates a sentiment. Why are they doing so good? They're doing better than me. So not only that, but many times 
it seems that when we complain about others doing better than us, practically speaking, the things that trouble us, that hinder us from just practically being more productive and, and having a, a, even by worldly standards, a better life, we bring those impediments to ourselves. It's a result of our choices. It's a result, not of what they're doing to me, but of the way I choose to live. My laziness, what I decide to do with the money that God gives me, with my lifestyle choices, right? And then we complain because we're not doing as good as our neighbor who gets up every morning, who hustles, who works, who works out, who eats healthy, right? Like, why am I not doing as good as them? Well, there's a practical point to start, right? In Spanish, we call it ponte las pilas, like put on your batteries, do it. And that obviously applies also to the spiritual, right? Because ultimately, we should have a certain kind of zeal, a certain kind of, if you call it good envy, to the godly, to those that are excellent in the faith, to those that should be our role models, right? So spiritually speaking, we should have a sense of zeal of, I, I want to be like my my brother, my sister that are so devoted to the Lord. Now that's good. So then, before we dig into these verses, let us recap a little bit about the prophet Habakkuk up to now. He's a prophet who has complaints against God. These complaints are broken down into two major complaints. They're called laments. First, he has God, his, uh, he brings this lament to God, telling God, why does it seem that, Lord, you are turning a blind eye to all the evil going on? God answers him, and God says, I'm not turning a blind eye. I know exactly what's going on, and I'm actually doing a work within the people of Israel, and I'm doing a work within an, a more evil people that are going to come and judge them. Habakkuk didn't like that answer. So now he comes to the Lord with a second lament. And his basic premise is this in his second lament. Lord, if you are so good, if you are holy, if you are righteous, why are you doing this? That's the first half of the lament. Today, the passage which is read, is the last end of that second lament. Last week, brother... Uh, next week, Brother Eric will, will give a sermon on the answer that God gives to the second lament. We saw in the first half of the second lament last week that Habakkuk accurately described the attributes of God. The eternality of God, the holiness of God, and the justice of God. Other attributes could be seen also in that passage, but those were the primary three. Today, in the passage which is read, the prophet Habakkuk is using poetic language to describe the attributes of the wicked. So he goes from describing the attributes of the righteous and holy God to now describing the attributes of the wicked that God is going to use to judge the nation. God's character versus man's character. 
So we will see this, as you guessed it, in three main points. First, we're going to see that the wicked oppress. The wicked are oppressive by nature. Secondly, we're going to see that the wicked worship. Right? The wicked are not godly. Yet, the wicked worship. So we're going to see who they worship or what they worship and why. And lastly, we're going to see that the wicked are proud. Right? Pride. The sin as old as the devil. So let's get right to it. First, we see that the wicked are oppressive. We're going to see this in verses 15 and 17. So let's recap those. It says, He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. And this verse 17 says, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So in those two verses, Habakkuk describes what the wicked are doing when he says that he brings them up with a hook like somebody's doing this who is he if we refer back to verse 13 the last part of verse 13 it says this the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he so this is a description of what the wicked is doing and is using poetic lament poetic language the illustration of an evil fisherman. An evil fisherman bringing him up the people of Israel in order to judge his people. Now, this evil fisherman catches his prey and brings them up with a hook. The translation there that is used for bringing them up with a hook, it literally means a fish hook. So then we see that by the evil fisherman being described in poetic form, we can see that the oppressor is in control. The oppressor lures his bait, catches his prey, and drags them out. The oppressor is in control. We also see that the oppressor, when he does this, the oppressor rejoices. Rejoices in capturing and killing his prey. And then we also see there in the question that Habakkuk asks in verse 17 that the oppressor has no fill. There's no stopping. There's no point at which a corrupt oppressor will say, you know what, all right, I've had enough. Like, I'll, I'll give the people a break. There's no such thing. An oppressive, wicked nation, an oppressive, wicked ruler, an oppressive, wicked dictator has no bounds into what he will ask people or force people to do. Is this not applicable to our time? Now, a word about the analogy that is being given, a wicked fisherman. I would like to point this out. It's not far-fetched to, to stretch the analogy a bit and realize that those being captured by this evil fishermen are not completely innocent. With the Babylonians, the wicked, that are more wicked than Israel, 
to come, they're going to come and judge them. Are they not responsible for their wrongdoing and their wickedness and coming to plunder God's people's land and oppress them? Are they not responsible? Yes, they are. And God's going to hold them to account. But it's not their turn yet. However, the people of God who are going to be judged, are they not also guilty of their own disobedience? Which is why God is bringing them a more evil nation than them in the first place to judge them. Are they not guilty too? So the principle is this. No fish is ever forced to bite the bait. See that? So let us then be careful not to be enslaved to our own sin and then say, ah, but it's somebody else's fault. We can't do that. Let us take a look at a passage in the book of James that reminds us of this. James 1, verses 14 through 6, and it says, But each person is tempted when he is what? Lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, when it, has, con it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So the wicked that are coming and are being described as wicked fishermen, they're guilty, they're evil, surely. But also those that are being judged, they are not innocent. Let's keep that in mind. So that takes us to the second point. The wicked are worshipers. Right, many times people will think, well, you know, only your religious freaks are crazy. You guys worship this imaginary God. And my answer is, okay, well, that's how you like to put it. But I like to suggest that you are also a worshiper. You worship also. In our human nature, we are all made to worship something or someone. The question is not whether you worship. The question is, what do you worship? What is your idol? <clears throat> Habakkuk describes these here in verse 16 it says therefore he the wicked sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich so then what do we see here it's, it, this means that by exploiting what he catches the wicked oppressor will live in luxury. This speaks of the concept of unjust gain. The search for unrighteous riches. This not only takes place of those that rule and lord and put mandates over people, but it's also within the general population, right? Those that are being ruled over also are enslaved to their oppressors as a result of their own sin. Both things could be true. So the search for unrighteous riches. Does the Bible say anything about that? You bet. Let's take a quick look at two references. Proverbs 11.4. It says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. This is a very wise proverb. It's a warning to us. 
that when we are laying down in our deathbed, if we have, I would say, if we have the privilege of being in a deathbed, see, at least we have a warning, like, I'm about to die. However money you have will not matter. However money you have, if you are not a child of God, it will still bring you wrath. But righteousness will deliver you from that wrath. Speaking about the context of salvation, ultimate salvation in the eyes of God would come by righteousness. That's what would deliver us from eternal death. And that righteousness is not ours. As we learn in the book of Philippians, that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. Right? Paul said that he wanted to be not found in the righteousness of his own, but in the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So riches were not going to bring any profit to us in the day of wrath. And this is the context of unjust riches. One more, Jeremiah twenty-two thirteen. it says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. There are some of us that could be in a position of authority over others that depend on the income that we give them. Do we deal righteously with them? Are we honorable to them? If not, we are being one that God describes as having unjust gain, unjust advantage by having financial power over them. The power taking advantage of the vulnerable. This can be physically, right? If they come and plunder the land. This could be financially or emotionally or all of the above. This would be some form of bullying. But true bullying, right? Not the type of bullying that people advocate for nowadays. Which is basically if, if you disagree with someone or you ask a question. All of a sudden you're bullying someone. That's not what we mean. We mean true bullying. Like when I was a kid. <laughs> that was true bullying back then. Now, we get the idea that the wicked then enjoy their just gain so much so that it produces something in them. It says that it produces joy in them. The result of their oppressing ways brings joy to them. So the luxury resulting from that unrighteous gain oppressing the weak causes them to do something it produces joy and it causes them to worship see that it causes them to worship the wicked also worship so who do they worship or maybe that's the wrong question not who they worship but what do they worship well the text says that they make offerings to their dragnet this is spiritual language that phrase is using the words of someone who sacrifices to a deity, sacrifices to a divinity. See that? So the wicked worship that which gives them luxuries and comfort. So what is the modern day dragnet? What do we worship nowadays? We worship that which brings us luxury, comfort, Right, that which makes us, how does it go? Like, 
dumb, fat, and happy, something like that. Like, I'll sit on the couch, I'll just watch movies, I will order um, takeout, and that's all I care about. Comfort, luxury, right? But it's ultimately that people worship today what is going to give them the comfort, which ultimately is money. Money comes in the work that we do, our professions. Now, is it a sin to have provision to work? Of course not. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that he who does not work doesn't eat. And Scripture tells us that him who does not provide for his household is worse than a non-believer. So obviously it's not a sin to work, to be diligent, right? to toil, to basically in modern terms to hustle, to be a hard worker. The Bible commends that. <clears throat> but we have to be careful not to fall in the trap of worshipping our employment, worshipping that which gives us money, which in turn gives us luxury and comfort. The problem comes when the priority, the drive, the love that comes with those riches, those comforts, when that is put aside, when, I'm sorry, when the love for God and seeking the kingdom is put aside and we put those priorities first. That's the problem. Scripture talks about that extensively, but I think it's very well summed up in 1 Timothy 6.10, where it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. When Jesus gave the parable of, of the sower, the four different kinds of seeds that fall into the ground, one of them that was a seed that didn't really give fruit was that someone becomes caught up with <clears throat> the cares of the world and with riches, right? Unjust riches. And what does that do? That takes us away from the things of the kingdom. <clears throat> Similarly, we just read that here in 1 Timothy 6.10. Notice again here <clears throat> that it is the love for, the longing for money that is a type of craving. We are lured by it. right? And it causes many to wander away from God. So then this is a call for us not to be like the wicked Chaldeans by worshiping the created, that is riches, luxury, comfort, but rather to worship the creator as the people of God. It is a warning sign for us. <clears throat> and then lastly, let's take a look at the fact that the wicked are proud. <clears throat> Habakkuk. 2 verse 1 it says I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint <clears throat> now we already saw that the Chaldeans <clears throat> were rebellious wicked people and prideful remember in chapter 1 where it said that in the description of their character it says that 
there were ones whose own might was their God. They had a God, a warrior God, Marduk. So they worship their power. That's who they are idolizing. And they are prideful in doing so. They have no regard for authority. They have no regard for uh, any type of rulers or kings. It says that they mocked any kind of authority figures or authority structure. So we already saw that they were proud, right? <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Let's take a quick look at who else is proud here. Right? Who else is being wicked here? Since being proud is a sin against God. We can see here that Israel is. Habakkuk, he's being proud. Habakkuk is essentially telling God here in this verse, the first verse of chapter 2. He's saying, I've now brought a second complaint to you, Lord. How can you do this to people? I have put this there. I'll leave it there for you. Get back to me when you have a good answer. <clears throat> and Habakkuk mentions this act of standing at a watch post on a tower. In the old cities, this was a watchman that would position himself so that he could protect the city, right? The cities had walls. So by the watchman guarding posts, he would be able to see when the enemy is approaching and then alert the people so that they would get ready for battle to protect their city. So Habakkuk is saying, I'll keep watch. And in the meantime, Lord, I'll wait for you to give me an answer. Give me an account. Explain to me why is it that you're doing this? All right, sounds pretty uh, prideful. And God, in his infinite wisdom, he has an answer for that already in his word. Let's take a quick look at Psalm 127, verse 1. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, there it is, the watchman stays awake in vain. <clears throat> Otherwise, imagine God saying, well, you know, I was going to bring judgment to Israel, but I gave Habakkuk a preview, and now he's going to try to prevent it, so now I need to think of plan B. No, my brothers and sisters, that's not, that is not the God of the Bible. If God ordained judgment, it will happen exactly and perfectly as, as he ordained it. Let us recall that Job, when he had similar complaints against God, Job recognized as much at the end of the book. When he recognized, when Job recognized the sovereignty and perfection of God's plans, Job spoke to us and he said the following in Job 42 verse 2. He said, I know that you can do all things, speaking to God. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Right? Job came to that conclusion. Habakkuk, prior to coming to, to chapter 3, is not yet at that place. He will come around, but he's not there yet. He's yet not content nor satisfied with God's plans. But until then, Habakkuk, will realize soon enough that the wicked will in fact not prosper in their oppression, live in large and luxury, 
at the expense of their victims, being proud and calling their own might their God? Habakkuk will understand that that will come to an end. But in the midst of seeing the destruction of his people and being told by God that it's actually to get worse, Habakkuk is very grieved. But in the long run, the God of justice will prevail. The God of justice will not be mocked. So then a question for us today is, are we content with, God, with what God is doing in our lives, in the lives of our church, of our homes, of our communities, of our states, of our country? Are we content? I mean, maybe within my home, like, I'm thankful, I'm content. Our communities, our state, I could probably find things to be, help, uh, to be thankful for always, right? We always got to be thankful. But if we are honest, there's many ways in which I'm not content. And I would make a similar cry out to God of why is he letting such corruption and wickedness go on in our communities, in our country. So are we like Habakkuk in chapter 1 and chapter 2, demanding God to give us answers to our prayers? Asking God why, do, why does he let those that are wicked prosper or maybe we are moving towards Habakkuk in chapter 3 or like Job towards the end of the book of Job coming to terms and realizing that God's plans are perfect and as a matter of fact if we got what we did what we deserved we would get nothing other than God's wrath so therefore let us be humble knowing that we serve a God who is patient slow to anger, faithful. That he is long-suffering towards us so that we may repent and turn to him in obedience. So the wicked will not prosper forever. That is God's answer, which is going to be explored further as we move to, verse, to chapters 2 and 3. We will see that answer in Brother Eric's message next week. <coughs> But for now, what can we take today, right now, from what we've learned so far? Let us explore a couple of things here. Today, we can know that if we find ourselves, if you find yourself discouraged this very day, I invite you to follow the way of Habakkuk. In supplication, pray to God, cry out to God. Ask God questions. God is not afraid of your complaints or your questions. God says, come, let us reason together. Right in Jeremiah. God is not afraid. And that's why we read in Hebrews 4.16, the following. It says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, we are in a time of need. More than anything, we need God's forgiveness. We need God's wisdom. We need God's conviction. So if you're discouraged today, if you're struggling, follow the way of Habakkuk. Come to God. Speak to Him. Let Him know your grievances. God is not afraid of that. 
And don't rely on what we don't know, right? This is also the way of Habakkuk. Don't rely on what we don't know, because Habakkuk is asking, Lord, why? Why are you letting the people of Israel suffer? Why are you bringing a nation more wicked than them? Why are you not punishing them? Why can you just not make this stop? Are we not so, in a similar way, asking many questions in our lives, in our day, in our culture, in our country? Lord, why are you doing this? Honestly, there's many speculations, but the truth is we don't know. We don't know why God is doing this. So let us not focus on what we don't know. Rather, like Habakkuk, let us rely on what we do know. And that is that God is eternal. God is holy. God is just. God is merciful. He's forgiving. And he understands and knows what we're going through. That's what Habakkuk told us in the last sermon that we studied, right? Bracing ourselves and standing on firm ground, knowing who God is, specifically knowing who Christ is. His working, his, uh, his work of salvation for us. And that will bring us hope. Then we can also look, application for today would be, Let's not worry about all the evil that is going on in the outside. Sure, there's evil going on. Sure, we should get involved. Sure, we should fight for righteous causes. Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we should. We should be involved. We should speak out for godly causes. But our biggest problem is not the evil that is going on outside. Our biggest problem still is the evil that is going on inside of us. <clears throat> Let us recall that as Habakkuk is writing this, around the year 586 BC, God uses the Chaldeans to judge the people of Habakkuk, the people of God. And then later, about 40 to 50 years later, 530 BC, God then brings the Medo-Persian Empire to wipe out the Babylonians. So they got it too. And presumably probably even worse than the people of Israel did. So they were judged. It's like a domino effect. Fast forward to our generation. Would not be far-fetched to say that God is using wicked nations, wicked rulers, wicked politicians, corrupt in all their ways, to, to discipline us. Let us not think that we are exempt, that we have a pass from God's righteous judgment. No, my brothers, no. This could very well be the case. And even more so, even getting more personal, <coughs> you got a bigger problem. In just a matter of a few years or months or, God forbid, days, judgment will come to you. Right? We talk about the Israelites being judged and the Chaldeans being judged, nations being judged, maybe our country is being judged right now. Let's hone it in. What about our judgment? Book of Hebrews says that for it is appointed for men to die once and then what? Judgment. Right? That's what we should really worry about. And the question then is, are you ready 
Are you in Christ? Have you been born again? That means spiritually made alive by repenting of sin and trusting in the perfection of Christ. Have we done that? And if so, if we say, yes, I have. Now, is there change in our lives? Because let us remember that when that judgment comes and there's no fruit, our faith was dead. Let us remember then that when that judgment comes, you, me, we're only going to be responsible for ourselves. We're going to have to give an account for our lives, not the lives of all those other wicked people. They're going to get it. We're going to be accountable for ourselves. And lastly, as a word of encouragement, my brothers and sisters, expect turbulence. What do I mean for that? If you ever got on a plane ride, you probably heard either the captain or the flight crew announce, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be a turbulent flight, so there's going to be no service of beverages. Make sure that you remain seated and your seatbelt buckled because we will have turbulence. Brothers and sisters, similarly, God has told us in his word that this life will be turbulent. So let us not act as though we are surprised when all this corruption, wickedness, and barbarities are going on around the world. So in that sense, one thing we know about from our experience in this very life is confirmed in the book of Habakkuk, right? We opened up knowing how such an ancient writing could relate to us. Well, here it is. We will have turbulence in this world. Jesus, in his own words, he says that you will have tribulation. He says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. I don't think many times we realize the intensity of that statement or of the things that Jesus said in general. Which leader or religious figure or philosopher has said, don't worry because I have overcome the world? Which person in world history has said, come to me, not to a philosopher or to an idol. No, he says, come to me, all who are worry and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who has said that? Only God has. Which is one of the reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus. They accused him of blasphemy. The Pharisee says, because you, being a human, make yourself equal with God. Jesus speaking the very words that only God can speak about himself. In that turbulence, Jesus has assured us that in our troubles, we have a Savior who delights in saving and who will turn no one away that comes to Him. And I often add, because the only reason you're going to Him is because He drew you. You are one of His. And it's going to be evident in the long run. Right? Many times uh, with conversations with our brothers here in this, in this church, we talk about the concept of like a very emotional conversion when somebody gets converted. 
There's nothing wrong, per se, with an emotional conversion. What is wrong is giving somebody false assurance that an emotional experience will save you. My brothers and sisters, I can never give you that assurance. The true test to whether we are children of God or not is in the long run. Him who perseveres to the end will be saved, not he who makes a profession. Right? The fruit of our lives, of our passions, of our desires, of our priorities will be apparent to the local church body. And this is why we walk together with each other. I will leave you lastly with a, a quote from the great and the late Arthur Pink in regards to encouragement in tribulation when it seems that we live in a wicked world, in a wicked nation, and in a wicked city, and in a wicked state, right? Arthur Pink said, Ah, my reader, if you are one of God's elect, expect not a smooth and easy path down here, but be prepared for varying circumstances and drastic changes. The Christian's resting place is not in this world, for here we have no continuing city, referencing Hebrews 13, 14. The Christian is a pilgrim on a journey. He is a soldier called on to fight the good fight of faith. The more this is realized, the less keen will be the disappointment when our ease is disturbed and our outward peace rudely broken in upon. May that be an encouragement to us to remember that if we are indeed in turbulent times, that this earth is not our home. And that we are waiting for that new heavens and new earth to fully enter the kingdom of God, which if we are in Christ, we are now part of that kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us that as turbulent times abound with corruption and wickedness and oppression, Lord, that more than anything, if we are in you, we are not victims. We are victorious over the ultimate enemy, which is sin and death. We claim that victory not because of something we did, but because of what Jesus has done. We trust in the perfect life, in the death, and in the resurrection of our risen Savior. That we will have eternal life, Lord. That this world is not our home. And that if we're going to be afraid of something, Lord, that we may be afraid not of COVID, not of disease, not of persecution, but that we will be afraid of your holy wrath. And as we are, Lord, that we would spread that message, that we would spread the gospel to a lost world. May that bring us encouragement, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.